Welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast, where you'll find fresh messages uploaded weekly. Pathway Church is a Bible-based church located in Peterborough, Ontario, and we're on a mission to reach people far from God and see them become devoted followers of Jesus. We hope that what you hear today will help you to take one step closer to Jesus. Thanks so much for joining us, and if you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe. Today we are in week two of a three-week message series called to be list. And this video series uh, comes from Connexus Community Church in Barrie, Ontario. And you're going to hear Carrie Newhoff as he talks about the subtle art of selling your soul. Enjoy the message. Well, I'm glad we can all be together this morning. And for some of you, this may be your first time, not just at this church, but church, period. Whether that's in the room at one of our rooms or whether you're watching online or, or listening a little bit later. And just to orient you around sort of who we are and what we do as a Christian church, we actually believe uh, that you're not an accident. Uh, The universe is not cold and impassionate. We believe that there is not only a designer behind what you see in the universe and around you and in you and in your family, but there's also an intelligent designer and that he's personal. And this God is knowable. And he came to us and revealed himself through Jesus. And it's in Jesus that we actually begin to make sense of this life, the, the, the mystery, the, uh, the, the hard parts, the good parts, and whatever you're going through, we're so glad you're here. You came to the right place, and you're joining us in the middle of a teaching series. We do a lot of teaching around here based on the scripture, and it's really all about your character because everybody's got a to-do list. You got a to-do list at work. You got a to-do list around the house. That's how you spend your weekends. Uh, it's like, you know, just to-do list to to-do list. But more importantly, we got to work on not just what we do, but who we are, and that's what we're looking at. And the big idea we're wrestling down over three weekends, we're right in the middle of the series right now, is simply this, that your character, not your competency, determines your capacity. And some of us, we're really driven by trying to be competent. I know I am. I, I like, I'm driven. I'm ambitious. I'm a little bit entrepreneurial. And so I just, when I was a young leader, I just thought everything was about competency. Just get better. Just get smarter. Just go to the right school. Read the right books. Work hard. Hustle, hustle, hustle. And as I've gotten older and as I've gotten to know God better and read the scriptures more and more and more, I read through them every year. I'm like, you know what? That is not what it's about. That's not what it's about. And last week we took a look at what happens at your funeral, that all of us at some point are going to die. And eventually people say things about you and you don't have any veto power anymore once you're dead. So they're going to say things about you and what are they going to say about you? And it doesn't matter so much what they say about you nearly as much as it matters what is true because of you. What's the actual legacy that you're leaving? Is it actually the legacy you want to leave? And so we kind of struggle with that. And if you want to know where your character is really at, a really good litmus test is look at the last time you got surprised or something bad happened to you. So uh, that actually was fairly recently for me. Um, It rained overnight. Okay, wherever you are in our rooms today, did it rain at your house last night? Anybody get rain? Quick show of hands. Yeah, we got a lot of rain. And so I'm driving a few hours ago, I'm driving to our broadcast location here in Barrie to speak this morning and prepare, and I'm pulling out of the driveway, and of course I, I backed in, so I'm tapping my brakes uh, as I get ready to pull out onto the street. And as I tap my brakes, all of a sudden I notice that it's getting a little bit wet inside my car. And then it's getting really wet, and all of a sudden there is a wall, a sheet of water that just comes down on top of me. I left the sunroof open. Last night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a little bit, you know, not not the hole open, but just a little tinge. And anyway, I'm getting soaked. 
And it was one of those moments I'm preaching on character. How do you react in a moment like that? Well, fortunately for me, I get to tell this story. I, I, I was kind of like, what is that? You know, you have that moment of like, what's going on? It's like, oh, I left the sunroof open or whatever. And then I look down and I'm soaked, like just soaked. My pants are soaked. My shirt's soaked. Everything around me is soaked. And uh, I, 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 I did okay today. I'm like, oh, well, it's just water. It's not a big deal. What is the best way to respond to this? So I did what you should do. Uh, I Instagrammed about it. That's what I did. Okay. <laughs> So just left the sunroof, tilted up, awesome, put that on my Insta stories, and you can see it all got pretty wet. And by the time I made it to the car wash, um, I closed the sunroof. So that was good news. But anyway, um, you know, how, how do, what, what do you do? And there have been moments where I've been caught off guard where I'm not really proud of what came out of my mouth, of my reaction, of my default. And what's so weird about the age that we live in, particularly in the political and in the social media sphere, is now people, (laughs) they used to keep those thoughts private. Nobody keeps them private anymore. It's just like this verbal diarrhea, this garbage that just makes it out over and over again. Is that really where you want to land? Is that really what you want to be at? And today what I want to do is I want to pull the camera back a little bit and ask this question, like, where does that all start? Where does compromise start? If you're going to morally be compromised, if you're going to end up doing something that you're going to regret for a season, for a moment, or maybe for a lifetime, how does that begin? How do you end up spending your life or becoming the kind of person that you never wanted to be? And rather than, rather than trying to explain it to you right now, what I want to do is I want to jump into a story. And when I jump into the story of somebody who really is a hero to me, I'm in the habit, the discipline for my adult life of reading through the Bible pretty much every single year. And every year, (laughs) I run into the story of a king who lived about 3,000 years ago. And this king is actually one of my personal heroes. You look at his early life. He was told he was going to be king when he was a kid. And you look at him, and he has so much integrity. And even though he was anointed the king... The problem was there was another king in Israel, so he couldn't really be king until something happened to that king. And nobody really liked that king after a while. The king who was in power became a bad king, uh, really turned his back on God. And this guy, this young king, my hero, is so virtuous. He has times, he has moments, several moments where he can take power into his own hands and usurp the king, and he refuses to do it. And he says, you know what? When God wants to make me king, he will make me king, but I am not going to do that on my own. He shows incredible integrity. The Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart. And then at the zenith, he eventually becomes king, and he expands the nation of Israel to become a superpower, really a superpower. And he is is at the apex of his power. And we meet him in the Old Testament. And things start to unravel. And every time I come across the passage I'm going to read to you today, I'm like, no, David, no, David, no. But, I mean, every year the story is the same. It doesn't change. And it's told to us in really uh, amazing detail and gives us an anatomy of how compromise happens, how moral compromise happens. It's like, really, David, did you have to do this? But he did it. So his name is King David. And when you look at the Bible, we've talked about this before, and some of you know this, but sometimes the Bible is prescriptive. It tells you what to do. And sometimes it's very inspirational. You read it and you go, yes. But sometimes the Bible is not prescriptive, it's descriptive. It tells you what happens. 
And these days, in an era of political biography, a lot of us would love to, you know, oh, well, don't tell that part of my story. And no, let's spin it this way. And let's, tell, you know, and it's like, you know what's so great about the Bible? It's just so brutally honest. And so the passage we're looking at today is not prescriptive. It's descriptive. After you read it, do not go home and do this unless you want to destroy your family. And if you want to destroy your family, you should do exactly what David did in this moment. And if you want to destroy your legacy, you should do exactly what David did in this moment. But we meet him at the apex of his power. And Israel has become a regional, if not a then global superpower. Uh, David has done so many things right. He's not perfect, but he's done a lot of things right. And we pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. We're going to look at a lot of scripture today. In the spring of the year, when kings, look at this, normally go out to war. And if you look at David's life to this point, he's always at war in the spring. I mean, you may not like war. I don't like war. But war was a part of life. And if you think, oh, we've evolved so much beyond that. Well, yes and no. I mean, have you studied the 20th century? Have you looked at what's happening globally? Have you seen the conflict in your family? You think we don't do war anymore? Anyway, the kings at that time in that culture, and God will speak to any culture anywhere, normally went out to war. But this year, David doesn't go to war. He stays back. He's in a position of power. And rather than using that power for the benefit of others, he uses it for the benefit of himself. He takes a year off. And David instead sent Joab, Joab was his chief commander, and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. We could have the next verse. That'd be great. David sent Joab. It's like, I'm not going to go. I'm going to send you. And if you look at how power operates, Andy Stanley's pointed this out. Normally what happens in human history is that if you become, if you're the founder, if you become the CEO, if you become the president, if you become the prime minister, if you become the king, all the power flows up to you and all the benefit flows down to you. And if you want an interesting character study, look at Jesus. Had all the power in the world and guess what he did with that power? He exercised it in your benefit. But that is not what David's doing. He's sending somebody else. And so they're at war. What happens next? Well, they destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, just in case you missed it, David stayed behind in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, he's a napper. I do love naps, so this is not what got him into trouble. Um, But anyway, he takes a nap. He's just kind of relaxed. He's having it easy. Late one afternoon, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. I mean, he's built himself this amazing palace that he lives in, and he's just kind of enjoying the property. He's at the cottage. He's sitting at the dock. He's relaxing. He's at the height of his power. He's thinking about all the good things he's done and all the accomplishments. And as he looked out over the city, which he's the king of, he noticed a woman. So he's a guy. He notices a woman. But she's not just any woman. He's a woman. She's a woman of unusual beauty. And she's taking a bath. And so he looks and says, look at me. Kind of glad I'm not at war right now. Look at that. And he sent someone, because he's the king, he's got all the power to find out who she was. And he was told, she is Bathsheba, 
the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, you can study this and you can say, you know, in the Old Testament, women were seen, and it wasn't just the Old Testament, it was those days, 3,000 years ago, women were seen as property. And fortunately, women are not seen as property anymore. They're people made in the image of God, etc., etc., and we're there. However, what's interesting about this text is that it's never just a woman of unusual beauty or a man who's built, kind of like I'm built. No, I'm not kidding. Kidding. All right. It's never, it's never just that. It's never just like, oh, look at him. Look at how chiseled he is. Look at, look at his six-pack. Look at her. Look at her. Everybody is attached to somebody. Anybody you've ever lusted at is somebody's daughter, is perhaps someone's girlfriend, someone's spouse, someone's best friend, someone's ex. That person you're lusting after was made in the image of God and is a daughter of God, is a son of God. Everybody's attached to somebody. And porn ignores that. And lust ignores that. And adultery ignores that. And all you really see when you're lusting after somebody is you. And what you want from her, from him. So who is she? Her name's Bathsheba. And he's the king. He can find out and do whatever he wants. The daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So she's married. And then David, what does he do? He sent messengers to get her. Now, what does this mean? I don't know, but he was the king. And for any of us, including myself, who are in positions of influence or power, and if you run something, if you manage something, if you lead something, even if you're like, it's just a coffee shop, it's not a big deal, you have a position of power, you have a position of influence, and you have to be so careful with that position of influence. Why? Because people will do things you ask them to do even if they know it's wrong because you have that influence. It's called an abuse of authority and abuse of power. David's like, I'm the king. I can make it happen. So he sent his messengers to get, get her and when she came to the palace, surprise, surprise, you knew what he was thinking. He slept with her. He slept with her. Then, she had just completed the purification after having her menstrual period. Most awkward verse I've read in years. Anyway, then she returned home. Next verse. All right, no explanation. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, it's like, well, it was just, it was just my lust. It was just a one-night stand. It was just a thing. And now she's, what, pregnant? She sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Guess what? Your actions have consequences. They have consequences. David's still the king. Does anybody really know about it? Well, maybe the palace guard, maybe the person standing guard outside his chamber, but they're paid not to tell. They'll cover up. They'll shut up. So then David, and this is my hero, sent word to Joab. <clears throat> he's got to come up, and he's a brilliant strategist. David's, David's smart. He says, send me Uriah the Hittite. Now, jog your memory. Who's Uriah the Hittite? Bathsheba's husband. And remember, he's at war. David's at home. Uriah, her husband, is at war. 
So Joab, again, people do what the king tells you, sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along. He's not letting on. He's not, you know what, I did something awful. I slept with your wife. I'm so sorry. He's like, so how's it going on the field? Like, what's, uh, what's going on there? Is the war going okay? And then he told Uriah, okay, well, thanks. You know what? I, I really like you as a soldier. Go home and relax. I'm going to, you know what? And then, and then Uriah leaves David's presence and he says to his guys, hey, come here, come here. Guy, team, team, come here. Uh, let's send a gift to Uriah, all right? Let's, let's get something delivered today. And what's he hoping, come on, what's he hoping happens? He's hoping he goes home and sleeps with his wife. Why? Well, that's not my baby. That's not my baby. This thing never happened. This thing never, it never happened. It was Uriah. He came home from battle. He had some leave and he went home. They had sex and nine months later, baby. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. He had more integrity than the king. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, what's the matter? What's the matter? Now, he's panicking on the inside, but he's cool on the outside. Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Like, you're, you're, come on, get the hint. Uriah replied, well, the ark which is really where the presence of God dwelt at the center of the, the, well, it wasn't the temple. The temple wasn't built yet. And the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents because the temple hadn't been built yet. And Joab, my master's men, are camping in the open fields. Look it. So God doesn't really have a home yet. Solomon and his son would build it. Uh, the, the army is in open fields. How? Look at this. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. I can't do that. And David, you see what power does sometimes? It's not power. I mean, power was exercised beautifully and masterfully by Jesus in a way that we've never really seen a human being exercise power that way. It's not power. It's the power of the mind to turn that power into what you want, and it gets so sinister. And so David's like, well... <clears throat> She got pregnant. He didn't go home and sleep with her. What's my next plan? I'm a smart guy. Okay, so David says, new strategy. Listen, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. Maybe if he's hammered, he'll forget his integrity. He'll go home and he'll have sex. But even then, even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. And again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guards. Guard. David's like, well, we're striking out here. Now what do I do? This was a man after God's own heart. If you ever read the Bible, you read the Psalms. He wrote a bunch of them. This is a guy who loved God. But in this moment, he forgot God. So he's like, I got one more idea. Because this is, this is failing. Uriah's integrity is too strong. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. So ironic. Here, I'll give it to Uriah. 
The letter instructed Joab, and Uriah didn't know because it was sealed with the king's signet ring. Station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest. Then pull back so that he'll be killed. He's got his death notice in his hand. He doesn't even know it. See how twisted this gets? So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew, because Joab just does what he's told, where the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed. Murder. So it goes from thought to lust to adultery to murder from a man after God's own heart along with several other Israelite soldiers. And then Joab sent a battle report to David and he told his messengers, report all the news of the battle to the king. So watch what's happening here because Joab and David, they've worked together for years and Joab's like, David's a beast. Like, we better win this thing or, you know, my job's on the line and now I got to go back and I got to tell him that I've intentionally blown a campaign and people got killed as a result of my mismanagement. But I don't want him to forget that he actually told me to do this, to blow the strategy. So he says, report all the news of the battle to the king, but he, David, might get angry and ask, well, why did the troops get so close to the city? Didn't they know there would be shooting from the walls? Wasn't Abimelech, do you remember that time? You know, you, those of you in leadership, you remember this? Don't you remember we tried that before and it, it, it got ruined? Don't you remember Abimelech, son of Gideon, was killed at Thebes by a woman who threw a millstone down on him? Why would you, be, why would you get so close to the wall? How could you be so stupid? But if he gets that way, because he might, because he's David and he's good at battle, then tell him, Uriah the Hittite was killed too. All right. Okay. So the messenger went to Jerusalem and gave a complete report to David and the enemy came out. And this is the report. The enemy came out against us in the open fields, he said. And as we chased them back to the city gate, the archers on the wall, archers on the wall shot arrows at us. Some of the king's men were killed, better include this part, including Uriah the Hittite. Now, normally David would have been livid. Heads would have rolled. Because you don't, that's bad strategy militarily. But of course, David knew what was really going on. So he said, well, tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. My plan worked. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And when the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. You might be asking, well, was that against his consent, her consent? Like, how did that happen? Well, first of all, he was the king. And secondly, you can look at this different ways through the commentaries. There was a question about, well, you know, was she looking for someone to pick her up when her husband was away? I mean, all that stuff. Nobody really knows. We don't really know. You can speculate. But it doesn't seem it's an abuse of power. Did Bathsheba want out of her marriage? 
We don't know. We don't know. But we do know that what happened was awful. And then she gave birth to a son. And then, this verse closes chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. You know what happened? From that point on, everything started to unravel for David. The baby would go on to die, but then Bathsheba would have another son, and that son's name was Solomon. And Solomon was a wise king, but not a great king. And the kingdom would get divided. And David's household, long before that happened, he had sons through other marriages he had. Um, One of his sons, Absalom, rebelled against him. Another one rebelled against him. And his whole family suffered the consequences of that. There can be forgiveness. And forgiveness can heal some of the damage done between the people. But the consequences continue. And the consequences ruined the quality of David's life. Fast forward a few years and he's fleeing the city as his upstart son takes over as king and then that son gets killed. It's just sad. And God, I don't think, is necessarily punishing David. God loves David. He's like, why did you do that? But my actions have consequences and your actions have consequences. And you might be forgiven, but the consequences, the spirals, they just keep going and going and going and going. You know what happens? You're like, well, how do you get there? The clues were all through the story. You don't get there overnight. Somewhere along the line, David said, you know what? I don't need to work as hard as I used to work. I don't need to be as vigilant as I used to work, as I used to be. I don't, I, don't, I, don't need to, I, don't, I don't need to take that kind of, of safeguarding and that kind of integrity. And maybe, you know, I wrote a lot of great psalms in the past. Maybe I'm not as close with God. I don't know what was going through David's mind. But somewhere along the way, he had let himself get to the point where he could not only see a woman of unusual beauty, but he could then say, oh, wow, she is gorgeous. Oh, my goodness. Who is that? And start to use all of his power in a way that God never designed it. When I think about how compromise starts in my own life, you know, I don't think you just wake up. You know, you have a perfectly great life one day, and the next day you wake up to somebody you're not married to. I don't think you have a perfectly great life one day, and the next thing you know, you've defrauded your boss of tens of thousands of dollars. I don't think it's just, you know, one day things are going well, and next thing you know, you're a drug dealer. Like, I don't think it goes that way. I don't think it goes that way that one day, you, you, you know, everything's perfect. The next day, you're a pathological liar. You know how it starts? A thousand little compromises. And a thousand little compromises leave you compromised. I don't know whether Bathsheba was the first. Maybe he was flirting for a while. Maybe he was misusing his power just in little ways. And we read of the one time where finally, you know, well, that was easy. We were just texting. We were just messaging. Yeah, it was a bit of flirting. Hey, it was emotional, but there was nothing physical, I promise you. There was nothing physical, but you know you're emotionally attached. 
Or, hey, it was just a white lie about what the business expense was. That's all it was. It wasn't a big deal. Hey, I know that wasn't 100% true what I said about her, but, you know, I was kind of upset. It's a thousand little compromises that leave you compromised. And what's so sobering to me, because we're all tempted. I'm tempted, you're tempted in more than just sexual ways. But you know what's so interesting about David's story? Is that yesterday's virtues don't make up for today's vices. You look at David, oh my goodness, there's so much good in his early years and he hits the apex of his power. And it doesn't, it, you can be forgiven, but all that stuff you did yesterday doesn't undo what you did today. And you can be the most powerful person in the country, but the reality is spin won't cover sin. It's like, well, it wasn't really me, it was Uriah. He came home, well, that didn't work. You know, you can spin the story however you want. Well, I didn't really say that. Well, that's not really what I meant. No, I'm not really like that. No, I'm not sure. You know, we live in a day. <laughs> I remember uh, former president of the United States, Barack Obama, was being interviewed. And he said, when I started in politics, he said this, which was really interesting. He says, everyone was entitled to their own opinion. He says, but I don't believe you're entitled to your own set of facts. Facts are facts. You might disagree about what those facts mean. Now we just make up facts. It's like, well, that never happened. Well, I didn't do that. Well, that wasn't me. Well, I didn't. Come on, spin's not going to cover sin. And I'm not saying this to hurt you. I'm saying this to free you. And God doesn't say this stuff just so that you can be like, well, I don't want to deal with that because now nobody's willing to have an honest dialogue about sin. And thank goodness for the Old Testament how honest it is that, that you know, the person who wrote 2 Samuel didn't spin this. It's like, here's David's good parts. And look at what happened. Carry, take notes. What do you do? And this is a mantra that I adopted a few years ago that's been so helpful. Live privately in a way that's consistent with how you want to be known publicly. Because a lot of us, we have this, well, this is what I do in secret and nobody's around and nobody knows about it. Like nobody knows where my phone really goes when I'm all by myself. Nobody knows about my habit. No one knows about my addiction. Nobody knows where I've got my stuff stashed. Nobody knows what I really, nobody really knows what's happening in my house. Nobody really knows how I treat her when we're alone. Nobody really knows. But just live privately in a way that's consistent with how you want to be known publicly. And you want to take that a little bit further. Just assume that everything you do in private will be made public. Just assume. Just assume one day this is all coming out. One day everybody's going to know. You ever have a mess up where you thought you were sending a message? I mean, we live in a world now where you can send more messages than you ever dreamed possible when you were a kid. You ever um, like accidentally send a text? Like how about this one? The internet's full of these from someone named Mark. Mark has no concept of how good he is, though. His baseline is self-doubt. What? OMG, sorry I was writing about you, and I guess I went into your name. Meh, it's okay. At least it's a compliment. Yeah, and the self-doubt thing is pretty true. So she accidentally texted the person she was talking about. That's fun. How about this one? We blurred out the picture for you. Can't wait to see you with a picture from this lady. Uh, This is dad, not Dan, your boyfriend. OMG. OMG is right, young lady. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's, a, that's fun. Sorry, Dad. Because <clears throat> one day, yeah, awkward, but it's true. One day, guess what? Jesus says, Jesus says this in Luke chapter 2. He says, look, time is coming where everything that's covered up is going to be revealed and everything that's secret will be made known to all. And whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. And whatever you have whispered behind closed doors will be shouted from the housetops for everybody to hear. It's coming. Now, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know when. I don't know how. But Jesus is saying, there's a time where everything you think you're hiding, it's going to be known. It's just going to be known. So what do you do? Well, just assume that everything you say in private is going to be made public because Jesus said we're going there. And you know what's really interesting? If you research the cutting edge of AI, we are apparently within a few years of computers being able to read your thoughts. Yeah, just think about that for a while. Anyway, have a good week. Anyway, there's a world of difference (laughs) between keeping something private because it's personal and keeping it private because it's secret. And yes, there are things that actually only a few people should know. People who care about you, people you can do something about, maybe a counselor, maybe the people to whom you're accountable. But, but you know what we fall into, particularly in this culture, in this generation? We fall into this problem. It's that we just think, well, I don't want everybody to know. So as a result, I'm going to make sure nobody knows. And that's a mistake. I didn't bring my phone with me, but one of the practices I've had for years now is not only does my wife have access to my phone and all of my devices, we, share pa- we don't share passwords, but she has access to all my passwords. So does my staff, so does my team. There's at any given point anywhere from two to six people who have complete access to everything I do digitally. You know what? That's awesome. Internet security shouldn't be internet secrecy. And you know, if, how would you feel if you just handed your phone to somebody? A person from high school you're exchanging messages with that you think is going somewhere? There are times, and if we had more time, maybe we'll talk about this next week, but you know, we have guardrails in place. We have things in place. I don't generally meet alone with people of the opposite sex. It's just something I haven't done. I decided years ago not to do that. I don't generally text people of the opposite sex on a regular basis. And on those rare occasions I do, I just hand my phone to my wife. Here you go. Have a look. There's keeping something private because it's personal. Let's say you are in a mess right now and there is some stuff. It's like, well, that's personal and there's a few people who should know, but you never want to keep it private because it's a secret. So next, what do you do? And this is the big take away this week, and it's, it's easy to say, it's hard to do, but break the silence. Break the silence. If there's something somebody needs to know, tell somebody. And if you don't have a best friend or you don't have anyone you can trust, we have a list of counselors at our locations. Go sit down with a counselor and tell them. When I used to do counseling, which I'm not very good at, by the way, don't email me, I'll ruin your life. Anyway, this is much better. But anyway, um, people, I would say to people, they'd come in, I barely know their name. And I'm like, listen, who else? I would always ask this. And if you do talk to me, I'll always ask you this. Who else are you talking to about this? And you know what the number one answer is? Nobody. 
because you got nobody in your life that you can talk to. So if you need to go pay someone, you know, for a counseling session, go tell a counselor. Break the silence before the silence breaks you. Because it'll break you. It's already eating at you. Or what'll happen, let's say you haven't done anything about it yet, you're going to be David one day. You'll be on the palace roof and you're like, you know what? And you'll wake up the next day and you'll be like, what did I do? How do I get out of this? Because the truth is, nothing good grows in the dark. Nothing good grows in the dark. Other than mushrooms. But other than that, you know, nothing, <laughs> nothing good grows in the dark. And I'm so-so on mushrooms. But anyway... Live privately, and here's, here's, here's the big challenge. This is a challenge I've given myself over the last 15 years or so, 20 years. Live privately in a way that's consistent with how you want to be known publicly. And if you want a character check, that's it. Now, next week when we come back, I'm going to talk to you about the rhythms and the disciplines and the things you can do to build up your character. And we're going to see how Jesus did it, which is really, really interesting because nobody ever talks about it, but the scripture shows us exactly how he did it. And I'm going to give you some very practical tools on how to build up your character because in the end, it's your character, not your competency that determines your capacity and your legacy. Let's pray. God, this has been really, really big, heavy stuff. I know it was big, heavy stuff in my life, but... There are stories being written here. And I pray you would help us to write the stories you desire for our life. We have a memory of Eden. We have a memory of a better world, a world you designed, a world you created before sin got into it. And yet we live east of Eden. And none of us comes before you blameless. I don't. Nobody does. So, Father, we thank you for your forgiveness. But I, help, I pray, Lord, that out of obedience, we would, we would write some more stories that don't require us to recover from. May we see your virtues, your values of fidelity and truth and integrity and love and hope, the things we all long for, become more and more of our lives. Keep us from sin. And where we have sinned, God, show us, show us your mercy and give us the courage to face the consequences of our actions. And we thank you that we have a helper. We thank you that we have a savior. As the Apostle Paul said, who can rescue us from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks for listening to the Pathway Church Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us, go to our website, pathwaylife.com. And as always, don't forget to subscribe. See you next week.